You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Marx, Hegel, and Feuerbach, and Marx's essay, The Critique of the Hegelian Dialectic. Andrew has just written a recent paper discussing some of the main issues in that famous essay of Marx's, and we're going to be discussing that paper of Andrew's. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. At the moment, I'll be asking Andrew some questions about his paper on Marx's critique of the Hegelian dialectic. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a moment to talk about some current events. Hey, we are recording this current event segment on the 23rd of June. It's been about two weeks since charges were brought against Donald Trump for stealing classified documents. We're going to be talking about the ongoing sort of fallout from those indictments. Of course, this has been covered very thoroughly in the media, so we're, we're not going to go into all the details. But we did want to talk about what Trump's possible strategy is for dealing with this. Many people at this point would be keeping their mouths shut. Trump has been giving interviews and ranting on his private social network in ways that further incriminate him and could be used against him in the court of law. So what's this all about is the question. I'm not sure. I lean towards the idea that it's a strategy to win this thing politically because there ain't no way he's going to win it legally, even if he were to keep his mouth shut. So I think that what he's doing is some kind of strategy. I think it's worked out like, hey, your goose is cooked in a court of law. Maybe even it's cooked with Judge Loose Cannon there. There's other indictments coming. And what you got to do is you got to become president again and pardon yourself. Yeah, that seems to be his best hope for not going to jail from these several indictments that are coming at him or have come at him is to just get elected president again and then just, by whatever means, pull a Netanyahu and insulate himself from any legal trouble. It could also be that that best hope he has just happens to correspond with a style of politics, a style of speaking that is the only natural state for him, which is to not apologize for anything and to just be... Uh, a complete asshole about everything. Right. It's very unusual to have a criminal defendant, you know, plead guilty and, and admit, although, as everybody keeps pointing out, there are admissions and confessions of the actual charges uh, in everything he says, you know, where he admits to what is alleged against him and then, you know, says something else. But criminal defendants don't admit guilt, but those that follow decent lawyers clam up. Okay, he's not even doing that. So it could be consistent with his personality, his personality disorders. Okay, I'm never going to admit wrong, but what's keeping him from like shutting up, right? That's a whole different issue. What I read in Amanda Marcotte's newsletter that she just came out with today, she's actually discussing this issue. We planned it ahead of time. She's discussing this issue. She says, well, I think it's strategic, but the, the guy's a con man. Con men think that they can talk their way out of anything. 
So that's, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, it could, it could be a combination of things. Yeah, it, it could be a combination of things. And it's also a combination that's particularly dangerous for the rule of law. You have a person who his strategy is to say, basically, yes, I did it. You cannot hold me responsible for this because I'm above the law. You know, the reason I'm above the law, the reason you can't hold me responsible is because I have a huge amount of supporters who are, you know, rabidly in my corner, basically like daring people to actually try to stop him. Um, having that kind of character in a position of power, potentially in a position of power, is a very dangerous situation. Yeah, and I think we know that we've been in that very dangerous situation since at least January 6, 2021. It's not going to get better by placating it, by, by coddling it, and shrinking in fear of it. We have to be in fear of it, but shrinking in fear of it, they just look for any sign of weakness. So it just needs to be smashed and, and just rooted out. You can't have this situation where the rule of law doesn't matter because, you know, 43% of the country doesn't want it to matter. That's this just not, not a tenable situation. There's a, a few wrinkles here. If we do think of it as strategy, what Trump is doing. One is probably the longer shot, which is definitely, I know that's what he wants, but uh, he's got to realize it's a longer shot getting elected, even though he's under indictment here and there, and he might indeed be convicted of something well before the election, or even a little bit before the election. People are going to vote for that. It's a real long shot. And then he pardons himself. Will the Supreme Court rubber stamp that nobody knows. But there's a, a more immediate thing that he can do by means of his talking and spinning and lying and, and all of this is he can poison the jury pool and he can, if he gets one MAGA juror that isn't going to like convict him no matter what, even if they think he's guilty, then you get a hung jury and prosecutors are, in general, reluctant. Sometimes they do, but in general, they're reluctant to retry a case when the jury's been hung. There's various aspects of, of this disinformation campaign that he's been running. And both of those scenarios are long shots in some sense for Trump, but they're not inconceivable that he could pull either an election off or having an effect on the jury pool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's actually not hard in, in, in a jury pool. I think the, the, the odds are with him to get a MAGA juror. Certainly down there in Florida, you know, get 12 jurors and prosecutors can just like exclude some of the potential jurors without cause. They can try to show cause for the others. But you got Judge Luce Cannon in the bag for Trump. She could disallow all of that or some of it. But then there are people who are very good at being deceitful. Yeah, yeah, those are all things. I, I wonder if Jack Smith is this crime-fighting wizard that it, everyone claims he is, if he must have a lot of confidence in in his case in order to bring it where he's bringing it in Florida, where he's bringing it. Right. You know, we, we don't, we don't, we don't know right. all the evidence that he has. Yeah. And he must have a lot of confidence in what he what he has in order to, you know, people speculated, like, where is he going to bring the case? Is it going to be in Florida? Is it going to be in D.C.? Blah, blah, blah. He brought it in Florida, where it's less advantageous for for him because of the potential jury pool, because of this potential judge. So he must be pretty confident. I mean, people talk about how the feds have, what, like a 97% conviction rate? I mean, maybe some of that's because a lot of people don't even 
go to trial. They just take plea deals. But I think you know people say once you might go into a court case as a juror with some biases, but then when you actually are like if you're presented with facts and you see how things are, you're not watching Fox News when you're in the courtroom. You're being presented with a discrete amount of facts and you're supposed to make judgments on them. So I mean, it still is quite a possibility that there could be a a MAGA juror, but. I also think there's quite a possibility that that the that Jack Smith, you know, has anticipated those kind of situations and has a plan for dealing dealing with them. Yeah, and I, I think we 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 know the plan. I mean, first on the the issue of venue, you just can't venue shop. You can't choose your venue. And although most of the law evidently indicates that he could have brought the case in D.C. or in in, in Florida. There's a D.C., I believe a D.C. law, you know, maybe some precedent that goes in the other direction. And and that's unusual, but there's something there. And perhaps he didn't want to take the chance that be bringing a case where he didn't have venue. So he went down to Florida. The other thing is there's kind of an ace, you know, up his sleeve. That's the backup plan. And uh, last week, Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman wrote about this in The Atlantic. If you look at the indictment, there is there are allegations of crimes over and above what he is being charged for, but the they're they're alleging the behavior which is criminal, and that occurred in Bedminster, New Jersey, where he's got some golf club thing. He had all these uh, the, the secret documents. He's waving around. He's talking to people. He's showing them highly classified maps. That's, I think, violation of two different laws having to do with dissemination of information that you shouldn't be disseminating. He's not charged with that down in Florida. Smith is saving that potential charge if the Florida case doesn't succeed. Yeah, or Loose Cannon is not, you know, an idiot either. Uh, Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman are writing about this. So one, it could be saving this in case the other thing goes south, or it could just be the appropriate venue. It could be the appropriate venue for what he did in New Jersey is New Jersey. Okay, but it it really doesn't matter because whatever his intent the fact that there are additional crimes that took place in New Jersey where the venue is New Jersey means that even on this case, not to mention January 6th, where that's the venue's obviously D.C., even, even in this case, this Florida trial is not necessarily the, the, the end of it. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the future, but now we're going to turn to our main segment. Uh, I'm going to be talking with Andrew about something he wrote recently about the critique of the Hegelian dialectic. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about a paper that Andrew has just written. It's called Transforming Reality, Not Only Thought, Marx's Critique of Hegel's Dialectic and Feuerbach's Materialism. Uh, Andrew, this is mostly a discussion of Marx's 1844 essay, The Critique of the Hegelian Dialectic. You're like, what's the basic gist of the essay and why, why did you decide to write it? Yeah, in, in terms of Marxist text, I would say, yes, it's mostly critique of the Hegelian dialectic, uh, supplemented by uh, consideration of his theses on Feuerbach and the German ideology, which were and a couple of other things in the 1844 manuscripts, all texts of the same period. The gist of the essay is that Marx 
had a distinct philosophy that was not Hegelian idealism and not Feuerbachian materialism. And instead, it's a philosophy of human activity, as uh, Ryadunivskaya put it. He, he hewed out a new philosophy of human activity. So this is a very controversial subject. It's been a controversial subject. It's going to continue to be, I don't think I'm saying much, if anything, new in this article, but I'm sharing my current thinking on, on, on the matter. So, you know, I do kind of answer a lot of things said by people who uh, wish to interpret Marx as a Feuerbachian, a follower of Feuerbach, somebody who uncritically endorsed Feuerbach's critique of Hegel. And I, I think that that's just not the case at all. So before I show what Marx's attitude to Hegel is, I say, well, as long as you have in your mind that he's a Feuerbachian, you're not going to understand this critique of the Hegelian dialectic. First, let's try to clarify what Marx's attitude to Feuerbach is. And once we can see that he's not just like a simple follower of Feuerbach, then we can see what he's doing in the critique of Hegelian dialectic, which at the start seems to be, yeah, rah, rah, Feuerbach, let's go, got everything right, baby. That's the way it seems at first, but but it's not, it's not that. Yeah, this is a really difficult text. Uh, yeah, it is a really difficult text. One of the most biggest challenges is that the reader basically needs a decent background in Hegel and Feuerbach's understanding of Hegel and then of Marx's understanding of both Feuerbach and Hegel. So like kind of four different topics that you need to have some background on to even understand what's going on. And it's very easy to get lost in the thread of the essay and to, to be not clear on, on any, any of those points. Uh, that's absolutely correct. I mean, a large part of the problem in understanding it is Marx wrote it for himself, never prepared it for publication. It's it's a draft, and in, I assume it's just a first draft. I think it's only, it's not even a second draft. So when Marx writes something for publication, he's a lot clearer, typically. Even back then, he was only 26 back then. But yeah, he, he left it in, in, in draft form. So certain things are almost like alluded to by... The, you wouldn't even maybe know what he's referring to unless you understand like the background, historical, philosophical background of what some terms mean and the whole history of like the debate behind the terms. Yes. And I think that's true of other texts as well. Make a, a, rather a big issue in, in the article about the first thesis on Feuerbach of the next year, you know, 1845. To understand, I think, like the first thesis, which talks about uh, human activity being objective and objects and, and all, all kinds of stuff like that, I think to have more than just a superficial understanding of what Marx is saying, you need to understand everything from Hume through Kant, through uh, Hegel, you know, and then Feuerbach concerning the role played uh, by the, the human mind in, in knowing yeah, so obviously we're not going to be able to cover all of that in this podcast, uh, but your paper, I think, does a good job of trying to work through some of these issues in a way that is clarifying, although I, I confess that I still find it difficult to, to follow all these things. But we're going to try to get through some of these issues in the podcast, and we hope readers will read the paper, engage with us, you know, write, write into the MHI website and people, you know, we'll have a conversation about these things. But can you tell us what the main things are you're trying to do in the paper? Um, let me just say, you know, why I wrote this and how I got into it. 
in MHI, we had a discussion. There, there was some interest in understanding Marx's relationship to Feuerbach. And we got to the point where we said to understand Marx's relationship to Feuerbach, you really need to understand also the critique of the Hegelian dialectic. So you need to understand something about Hegel and Marx's critique of Hegel to understand Marx's relationship to Feuerbach. So we had these meetings, we had study questions, and I wrote out my answers to the study questions. And I said, well, I'm getting old here, uh, might not last that much longer. Let me do something with this. Let me share what I, I worked out for myself. And so the result of that is, is, is this article. So... I think to understand the critique of the Hegelian dialectic, that text, to see that it's not just a critique of Hegel and praise of Feuerbach, you need to first have a better understanding of Marx's relationship to Feuerbach. So that's what I do in the initial sections of this article. I begin with a couple of people who just interpret Marx as pretty much an uncritical Feuerbachian. And then I say, okay, well, what about method? You know, Marx is said to have just taken over, adopted Feuerbach's method of inversion. Uh, Feuerbach says the world of religion is really the secular world, just externalized and human qualities are projected onto these external gods. So that's the method of the inversion. He says, no, the religious is really the Secular, only projected outward. I go, I go into Marx's critique, very explicit critique of uh, Feuerbach's method of inversion, Marx's alternative to it that he poses, and he says that his alternative is the opposite. His, his alternative is the inversion of, of what, what Feuerbach was doing. So in terms of method, no, they're not the same. And then the whole issue of Feuerbach's materialism. Feuerbach was materialist. And, well, did Marx embrace that uh, Feuerbachian materialism? No, he didn't. He doesn't embrace Hegel's idealism either. And so I, I tried to show that for Feuerbach, what has primacy, what has pride of place, firstedness as a starting point you know, for philosophy is so-called sensuous reality and the immediate knowing without mediation of thought of that sensuous reality for Marx, and he works that out here in the critique of the Hegelian dialectic, what has pride of place and, and primacy and is the starting point, though not as a fixed beginning, but as a result, the primacy is accorded to human activity. And then I go into, well, what is it that Marx means by human activity, right? Is, is it just like physical labor? Does it have any philosophic significance? And I go into all those issues. Okay, then I get to the, uh, the critique of the Hegelian dialectic. And what I'm trying to do there, it's not a full reading of the critique of the Hegelian dialectic, but I'm trying to show just how it's a misconstrual of what Marx is doing to say that he's embracing Feuerbach's position, although he agrees with the criticism of the Hegelian dialectic that Feuerbach makes, what he's agreeing with is, yeah, that's the, these are the defects of the Hegelian dialectic as Hegel himself understood and presented the Hegelian dialectic. But Marx's argument is that's not all the Hegelian dialectic is. What it is, you know, in itself is different from what Hegel wanted it to be and the way he presented it. So Marx, in the same essay, 
formulates an entirely new interpretation of the Hegelian dialectic. He knows it's not Hegel's own interpretation, and Marx has a approving attitude. He embraces this new interpretation of the Hegelian dialectic that he works out, and the, the dialectic is now the dialectic of human activity. And then I come finally in the, in the, in the article to what is the real dividing line, the real point of very serious contention uh, between Hegel uh, and Marx uh, that is addressed in the critique of the Hegelian dialectic. There's, there's one thing where Marx doesn't say, oh, yeah, well, this is right, but misrepresented. He says flatly no. Uh, and that has to do with the issue of alienation. Hegel kind of, according to Marx, According to Marx, Hegel conflated, fused together, alienation and externalization. Everything external to human beings, or more precisely thought, human thought, everything external to that is alien. And so the goal is to have a different attitude to the external world such that it's no longer alien. But that means for Hegel, no longer external. So there's this idea of withdrawing externality, thought withdrawing externality into itself. The, the way that you overcome this alienation, according to Hegel, you know, the, the fact that there is this reality outside you is you come to understand it as your own and as uh, an extension of you and an expression of you. And Marx just like hates this. And it's because it has to do with the issue of, of social revolution. You, you can't change things just by thinking about them differently. You can't change the fact that there's external reality just by saying, you know, oh, well, we created it and it's really an extension of us. The external reality doesn't disappear. Marx says, hey, you know, what's going on is this is why Hegel accommodates the state. He reconciles himself to the state. He says, ah, the state looks like it's something alien, you know, external, not part of us, but we created a, We created it. We realize ourselves in it. It's an expression of us, as if that makes it hunky-dory. Marx says the, the, the fact of the matter is, the problem isn't that it's external. The problem is it's inhuman, alien. And you don't overcome that inhuman character of the state or of gods or, or whatever it is just by thinking about it differently and saying, oh, you know, it's really human. No, it's not really human. We created it in some sense, but we created it as an alien other. And what we really have to do is get rid of that. And you don't get rid of that by thinking about it differently. You get rid of that by destroying it and, and, and putting something human in its place. So... For Marx, this distinction between external reality and alien reality is all important, and it has to do with do you accommodate yourself to reality, as Hegel had to because external reality doesn't go away, but alienated reality can indeed go away, and that's the task of revolutionaries. So it, it's, it, it's really a, f a fighting issue for him. At a, at a very basic level. And that's where the most trenchant critique of Hegel comes in this critique of the Hegelian dialectic, I think. While we're on the topic of this difference between externalization and alienation and Marx's critique of Hegel on this point, Hegel's talking about like all of external reality. Marx seems to be wanting to criticize Hegel when it comes to alienated social relations and to say that they need to be changed in order to overcome that alienation. What about things that are not that are part of external reality that don't have anything to do with 
alienated social relations. Is Marx also criticizing Hegel on those things? Is there, are they just talking about two different issues? Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure I know the answer. I mean, Hegel did talk about religion and he did talk about the state. And Feuerbach says Hegel reinstated religion after supposedly having negated it, negated religion. Philosophy supposedly negates religion, but it restores it. That's that's uh, Feuerbach's critique. So you negate religion, then you restore it. That's the negation of the negation. You're back where you started. So the negation of the negation is just, you know, playing with words. It's self-contradiction. It's not good for anything. Let me start from, and everybody should start from, nature, sensuous reality, and the immediate knowing of that. Now, yeah, for, for Hegel, this is applicable generally to the thought of things and, and, and the things, because Hegel doesn't ultimately think that the things and the thought of them are radically different. Marx is just not that interested, I believe, in issues of knowing, in issues of epistemology. I mean, he will talk about you know, method and, and so forth, but the, the kind of questions about how we know and so forth don't, don't really interest him that much, I think. So he's concerned with the state and reconciling oneself to it, religion and reconciling oneself to it, obviously capitalism and, and reconciling oneself to that. You know, he wants to get away from all of that. He doesn't just, as far as I know, pay much attention to the rest of it. Like, I don't even know how to, how to formulate the, the rest of it, but he's kind of silent on on the other things. It, it, could, it could possibly be that Marx is not taking a position on the larger ambition of what Hegel's trying to do, but he's dealing with a, a particular problem, which is alienated human social relations and saying that these cannot be overcome with thought. They have to be overcome in the real world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Hegel is like wrong in his approach to like the way thought comprehends objects and all the stuff Hegel's trying to do. Yeah, I, I would say I think implicitly I think Marx is saying that Hegel is right because Marx critically appropriates, but in the critical form, he endorses the negation of the negation. So what, what he does say, Marx, is the way that thought proceeds, according to Hegel, is by means of the negation of the negation. The way you come to know reality is by means of this double negativity, negation of the negation. And that's the, the, the way things are for thought. And Marx is saying it's not only the, this way for thought, it's, it's this way in, in the real world of human act activity as well. So I would say in that sense, Marx is extending what Hegel has done and saying it's not only a matter of the negation of the negation uh, operating in philosophy, the knowledge of things, but it's operating in the real world of uh, human mental and manual activity. Another thing you write about in the paper is this issue of negativity being external or internal to the object. W what is this uh, distinction about negative externality versus internal externality about, and why is that important? Negativity being internal yes. or external. Yeah. Right. I discuss this in connection with Feuerbach's method and Marx's supposedly having adopted that method. 
Feuerbach's method of inversion, this reduction of the religious world to the secular world, is unmasking, as it's called in sociology, philosophy, and so forth. It's an attitude of debunking, really. And there's negativity there because you say, ah, you know, you think it's the gods, but it's really human beings just uh, externalized. So there's negativity there. You know, there's a critical negative attitude, but it's only a matter of the critic's attitude that's negative. The reality just like sits there, right? You know, it's like you got this religious world, you got the, the secular world. So you can have a critical attitude to it, but it's just subjective. Marx really hates this. He hates this in 1845 in his thesis on Feuerbach. He hates it in 1867 when he writes about this in chapter 15 of Capital, the one on machinery. And he says what's involved is that the negativity is inherent in the object or in the social relation. There's an internal contradiction. There's not just a contradiction between the secular world and, and the religious world. There is that contradiction because of an internal contradiction within the secular world. So the way he says is, uh, the way he puts it is as follows. This is the way he puts it in 1845 in the thesis on Feuerbach. The fact that the secular basis lifts off from itself and establishes itself in the clouds as an independent realm, you don't touch that at all just by saying that the religious is really the secular and reducing the religious to the secular. How come there's this religious that is detached from the secular? This can only be explained by the inner strife and intrinsic contradictoriness of the secular basis. So you want to complain about religion. The problem of religion has to do with the contradictoriness and inner strife and all kinds of things going on in the secular basis. That's the source. Just criticizing religion doesn't do it. So it's, it's a question here of grasping uh, internal contradictions, and that's a question of understanding problems, not just in their manifestations, not just the symptoms, but understanding them at their root to be able to understand the possibility and the need and seeing how that can be changed. And Marx applied this idea of intrinsic contradictoriness and his inversion of Feuerbach's inversion, not only to the, the instance of religion, he did this with respect to Proudhon and Proudhonists. Uh, they didn't like the fact that in addition to commodities, there was this one privileged commodity, money. So just like you got privileged God, crappy people underneath, you got this privileged money and you got all these other commodities, which are just not as good as money. They got to like be sold for money be until they get recognized as valuable. And so Perdonis didn't like that. They wanted all commodities to be able to function the way money now functions, to be able to be recognized as valuable in, in and of themselves. And that would be good for all the, you know, independent commodity producers who nowadays have to sell their stuff and there's got to be demand for it. No, 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 no. Every, every, every commodity will immediately be money. That was their view. Marx says this is just completely nuts. And so what he does in chapter one of Capital is he says, he shows that this contradiction between money on the one hand and all the other commodities on the other, that's just an external form of appearance of an internal contradiction within each commodity between value and use value. 
money seems to be like, you know, that's value. And the other th- commodities seem to be use value. But Marx says, no, no, no. That's just an external form of appearance of this internal contradiction within each commodity, just like the duplication of the world into religious and secular has to do with the internal contradictions in the secular world. So if you really want to like do anything about it, you, you got to go to the source of the problem, to the secular world, to the existence of commodities, get rid of commodities, commodity production, commodity exchange, get rid of the, the contradictions in society that lead to you know this religious uh, alienation. So it's, it's important for revolutionary thinking, this idea that contradictions are not external but internal. It's, it's of utmost importance. It's, it's not just our attitude. The negativity is not this, just that we don't like it. We're not just trying to fulfill a moral ideal, but it's something that is needed objectively, and we have to find ways in which it might be possible to change the world. And you need, you need to understand internal contradiction to do that. And in regards to the relationship between what Marx is doing here and what Hegel does with internal contradiction, this is an example then of Marx like extending Hegel's con- concept of internal contradiction to the real world and seeking to resolve those contradictions in the real world. Right. Yes, I, I think that Marx is heavily indebted to Hegel's understanding of contradiction. And that has to do with the idea that things themselves are internally contradictory, which is, of course, uh, very uh, controversial because some people think it flies in the face of logic. Uh, Hegel doesn't, and, and, and I don't think Marx did. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But 
We have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. What does negation of negation have to do with humans creating themselves and their reality? Well, I mean, what Marx argues is that the negation of the negation is operative in human labor, both mental and, and manual. And actually, all acts of labor are in some way both mental and manual. Hegel applied that to mental labor, philosophizing. The way the, the, the mind cognizes things is you, you got the thing, there's a recognition of some internal differentiation in it, and you arrive at a fuller understanding uh, of the thing by overcoming that, that opposition between the thing and its opposite. That's the way thought progresses. Marx is saying this is the, the way it is with, with labor as such. So we've, we've got the laborer, we've got the, the, the object, and the, the labor works on the object transforming the the worker transforming the object and that that's the product the product is both the transformed human being and and the transformed object okay so the real important point i think is that marx says hegel thinks he's only talking about philosophy he's he's only talking about one kind of labor philosophic labor you know that that's the only thing he recognizes he he reduces people to the to their self-consciousness but this negation of the negation is actually the movement of history. It's, it's the way real history operates. All of human activity, he's saying, operates this way, only expressed in an abstract and logical manner. But Hegel has found the principle, the negation of the negation, is, is the principle operative throughout history of basically the creation of novelty, the new results emerging from transcending what has come before. It operates like that in thought and it operates like that in, in, in all of, of human activity. And, and that's, that's why Marx is so appreciative of uh, Hegel's negation and negation, the dialectic of negativity, the Hegelian dialectic, pretty much all synonyms. And this is why he says Feuerbach is wrong. Yeah, Hegel meant something, but what, what he really did was uncover a principle at work in all of human activity, creation, self-creation. In this essay, we identify idealism with Hegel, materialism with Feuerbach, and then we have Marx's position, which you describe as his Marxist humanist alternative to both idealism and materialism. What would be your like succinct definition of that? 
Marx's perspective? He said it's thoroughgoing naturalism or humanism that distinguishes itself from idealism uh, and materialism, but is the truth uniting both. What exactly does that mean? Ryodonevskaya said what he's creating there in the critique of the Hegelian dialectic and related texts is a new philosophy of human activity, or she also called it philosophy of revolution. So it doesn't say the primary thing is disembodied thought. It doesn't say the primary thing is sensuous reality in the terms of inert static objects like Feuerbach had. It says the, the primary thing is human activity, both mental and manual. And since human activity is both mental and manual, and Marx gave priority to the, the mental aspect. He says, this is in capital. He says, you know, before you like produce an object, you got the finished object in your head, in your mind, you know, as the aim, it's already there and you just have to realize it through the activity. So the, the mental thing is the, the main thing going on there. And since human labor, which is different from, like he says, the labor of bees, they don't have th those intentions. They just do. Okay, but human beings have intentions and they carry out the intentions by means of their labor. So this philosophy of, of human activity, it, it's it's not idealist, but it's got this element of the ideal, the, the plan, the intention beforehand. And of course, it's, it's material. Human beings live in a sensuous world. We create the sensuous world. So he says it's neither, it's neither idealism nor materialism, but it's the truth uniting both. And I think that, that what I'm trying to get at is the sense in which there's both ideality and materiality in what he's saying, but he's clearly got a distinct position from saying nature outside human beings or disembodied thought are what philosophy and stuff should be grounded in. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about externalization, alienation, <clears throat> the difference between Hegel and Marx. We do have these three terms, alienation externalization and objectification and it can be sometimes confusing to me at least how those terms are being used between hegel and marx maybe you could give us a, a little glossary here and explain the difference i think that they're actually using the terms in the same way uh, i don't think they mean different things by the terms i think rather the issue is at least as marx understands hegel which may be misunderstanding, may maybe not. But as Marx understands Hegel, anything external to pure thought is alien to it. Okay, he regards, according to Marx, the existence of an independent reality that is not just subordinated to and subsumed within thought as not only external but alien. Okay, for for for. Hegel, as Marx understands him, what philosophy needs to do, what thought needs to do is absorb all of the external objective world into itself. Okay, And that's the nature of, of his idealism. It's not that like there is no material reality outside, but to be real, what is outside has to be brought within and understood conceptually and turned into thought, which is, you know, the, the, the true essence of the thing. So Marx doesn't agree with that. Okay, so he, since he doesn't agree with that, he says, well, the stuff is external, but that doesn't make it alien. What makes it alien is it sucks. 
you know, the state, you know, these religions, capitalism, they are inhuman. Okay. And so as inhuman, they are alien, other, the, the bad guys relative to the human. We want human because that's us. That's who we are. And these things are not that. They are alien to us in that sense. So they're not only external, but they're alien. And Marx is saying, you're not going to get rid of the, the, the external realities. The, you don't get rid of external reality. Hegel attempting to do so, he's just pretending. And because he's pretending to get rid of external reality and he can't really do so, what he does is, well, I thought about this differently. I've understood all this stuff outside is really human and our creation and our expression. And we realize ourselves in it. So he's, he, he ends up accommodating to existing reality. And that's a lie, Marx says. It's a lie of his principle. Marx says, no, the external reality is going to always be external. Objective reality is always going to be there. You don't get rid of it. What you can get rid of, and we got to get rid of, is an alienated reality. Okay? So that's not only external, not only takes the form of objects, but it does so in an inhuman manner. And if we change the world so that it is something that we can be more at home in, then we can be at home in it. And it's a humanized world. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So toward the end of your paper, Andrew, you quote uh, Marx's 11th and final thesis on Feuerbach. Marx writes famously, philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. And you talk about this you know, concept of human beings and their ability to change the world is like central to what Marx is advancing here is like the Marxist humanist way of doing philosophy. That made me wonder, does, does, you know, does that mean philosophy has to be aimed at transforming the world in order to be true, to be real, to be like authentic philosophy? Or, and I mean, I don't know what it means for maybe authenticity or true or something is not the right term, but but maybe you get the gist of the question. Right. Um, I mean, there are two basic senses in which people use the word true. One is correct, factually correct. So let me just state, that's not your intention right here. Let me just state at the outset, a philosophy does not have to be aimed at the transformation of the world in order to make statements that are factually correct. That, that's not the issue. The other sense of the word true is authentic. Like you're saying, that's a true work of art. That person's a true friend. What I really don't like is that the same term gets used for, you know, correctness and authenticity in that sense. Yeah. Or be a good philosophy. I mean, you know, have an internal coherence, have like a sense of being a valid philosophical. And I guess it's similar to the previous question is whether this is like rhetorical or is this a real statement about what makes a good philosophy a good philosophy it's like what 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 is the purpose of philosophy what is the root of philosophy and people have different views of that some people say well philosophy begins with a sense of wonder you want to know why things are the way they are and then the, the other position on i have forgotten temporarily the other who the other both i can't attribute the position to any, any people anymore uh, i've forgotten that the other is philosophy is there because things seem to us contradictory and we want to resolve the contradictions. I mean, in a sense that, that the resolution of contradiction is, is transformation of the world. No, it does not affect, you know, the distant cosmos directly, but it's, it's transforming our world. 
So I, I don't know whether philosophy has to be aimed at the transformation of the world in order to be true. I would say in order to be adequate to human beings and what we are, it does have to aim towards the transformation of the world. Because it, because it seeks to resolve contradictions. And what I think human beings want to do and try to do is overcome the problems that exist between them and the world, which includes them and other people and so forth. We, 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 we want to overcome these, these contradictions. That's what, that's what we're trying to do. In other words, we, we want to be at home in the world, and that requires transformation. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.